In this episode, I want to talk about what is known in the Western world as appeasement. It has been a concept in the West since the late 1930s. It's associated primarily with British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who it is said famously appeased Adolf Hitler. Then, despite that, he had to still declare war on Germany in 1939. Thus, this argued by some that it demonstrates the failure of appeasement as a foreign policy instrument. In many conversations, the term is often thrown about as a sign that if you give a little to someone nasty, then they will take more, get stronger, and then you'll live to regret it. Well, is that even true? I'm not so sure. To some degree, appeasement is the natural way of the world. In diplomacy, you give, you take. You appease positions that may not be good for you. You give here and maybe take there. Most times, the stakes are not so high. Other times, they are high. In 1939, the stakes were high. Thus, many argued against it. There is this short book called Guilty Men, written in 1940. It attacked British public figures for their failure to rearm and their appeasement of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. A condemnation of the government's policies between 1934 and 1939, it shaped popular and scholarly thinking for decades to come, as an and it is often used even to this day, yes, this day in 2022, as Something negative, a appeasement being negative. Guilty Men was written by three journalists. Michael Foote, a future leader of the Labour Party, Frank Owen, a former Liberal MP, and Peter Howard, a Conservative. They believed that Britain had suffered a succession of bad leaders who, with junior ministers, advisors, and officials, had conducted a disastrous foreign policy towards Germany and had failed to prepare the country for war. Guilty Men was published in early July 1940, shortly after Churchill became Prime Minister. The Dunkirk evacuation had shown Britain's military unpreparedness, and the fall of France left the country with few allies. Several major book wholesalers, such as W.H. Smith's and Wyman's, and the largest book distributor, Simpkin Marshall, refused to handle the book. It was ultimately sold on newsstands and street barrows and went through 12 editions in July 1940, selling 200,000 copies in just a few weeks. Interestingly, the speed in which Guilty Men was written shows in its errors. For instance, the authors muddled the place and date where Baldwin, aka Stanley Baldwin, said that rearmament was unpopular with the voters. They placed it at the 1933 Fulham East by-election instead of the 1935 general election and dated the by-election to 1935. 1935 was corrected to 1933 in later editions, so don't let that catch you. The book shaped popular thinking about appeasement for, well, forever in the West. It effectively destroyed the reputation of former Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain and probably contributed to the defeat of the Conservative Party at the 1945 general election. So who were these guilty men? Fifteen in total. Neville Chamberlain, Sir John Simon, 
Sir Samuel Hoare, Ramsay MacDonald, Stanley Baldwin, Lord Halifax, Sir Kingsley Wood, Ernest Brown, David Margerson, Sir Horse Wilson, Sir Thonham, Sir Thomas Inskip, Leslie Bergen, Earl Steinhorp, W.S. Morrison, Sir Reginald Dormit Smith. That's the 15. Chamberlain was not the only UK Prime Minister to follow this policy. So was his direct predecessor, Stanley Baldwin, and directly before him, Ramsay MacDonald, who was PM when Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933. Lord Halifax was at the Foreign Office under Chamberlain. Chamberlain resigned as Prime Minister in 1940, although he stayed in the Cabinet and he died just a few months later in 1940 itself. Neville Chamberlain never really had a chance to defend himself or his policies as Prime Minister. Eventually, Churchill would put his own spin to the history of the time. Baldwin, unlike Chamberlain, lived to 1947 and was subject to much abuse and blame throughout the war effort. He was constantly being blamed for the policy, that policy, that appeasement policy. At the beginning of the 1930s, appeasing concessions were widely seen as desirable due to the anti-war reaction to the traumas of World War I, a.k.a. the Great War, 1914-1918. to Second thoughts about perceived vindictive treatment by some of Germany in 1939's Treaty of Versailles and a perception that fascism was a useful form of anti-communism persisted throughout the era. Those who were advocating war, like Churchill, was also considered people on the far fringe. Those who criticized after the war were looking at history with the benefit of hindsight. By the time of the Munich Agreement that was concluded on the 30th of September 1938, that was between Germany and the United Kingdom, France and Italy, the policy was opposed by the Labour Party, few conservatives, such as future Prime Minister Wilson Churchill, Secretary of State for War Duff Cooper, and future Prime Minister Anthony Eden. Peasement was strongly supported by the British upper class, including royalty, big business, the House of Lords, and the media, such as the BBC and the Times newspaper. Often, in images, one will see two defining photos and voiceovers. The first image is that of the meeting between Adolf Hitler and Neville Chamberlain. The second image is that of Chamberlain on his return to Britain declaring peace in our time. And I'm quoting Chamberlain here. How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. End quote. Neville Chamberlain, 27th of September, 1938, 8pm radio broadcast on Czechoslovakia's refusal to accept Nazi demands to seize border areas to Germany. Chamberlain's aeroplane landed at Heston Aerodrome on the 30th of September, 1938, and he spoke to the crowds there, and I'm quoting again. The settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is in my view only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all of Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. He shows the paper to the crowd. 
Then he goes on, some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Later that day, the Prime Minister stood outside number 10 Downing Street, again read from the document and concluded this, and I'm quoting again. My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honour. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Go home and get a nice quiet sleep. End quote. You can tell from some of those statements that that's what shaped Western thinking at the time. It's also what shapes Western thinking today. They think that everyone else is essentially evil and has evil as Adolf Hitler. If you appease, you facilitate. If you ignore, well, that's immoral. This anti-appeasement and pro-war view has dominated the Western world since the end of World War II. Almost every Western-sponsored war is ignited by rousing its population just on these measures. Never mind that Adolf Hitler was one person at one circumstance at one time. Hitler was around just once, not twice or thrice, just like Genghis Khan, Marcus Aurelius, or Ashoka, Buddha, and Jesus were around just once, so was Hitler. It's bonkers to assume that everyone who hates the West is an Adolf Hitler figure. History does not repeat or rhyme. Our brains are simply designed to fall into narratives and are attracted to patterns, even when there are none. Famed historian A.J.P. Taylor wrote a revisionist history book on the origins of the Second World War. It was rather controversial. He began his book with a statement that too many people have accepted uncritically what he called the Nuremberg Thesis, that the Second World War was a result of criminal conspiracy by a small gang comprising of Adolf Hitler and his associates. He regarded the Nuremberg Thesis as too convenient for too many people and that it shielded the blade away for the war from the leaders of other states. He argued that it let the German people avoid any responsibility for the war, that West Germany was a respectable Cold War ally against the Soviets because, after all, NATO was the ultimate successor state against the USSR. That bit there is my contribution, not his, that NATO was the ultimate successor state against the USSR, just like Nazi Germany had been the state opposing the USSR beforehand. Taylor argued that Hitler was not just a normal German leader, but also a normal Western leader. As a normal Western leader, Hitler was no better or worse than anyone else in the 1930s. A.J.P. Taylor portrayed Adolf Hitler as an opportunist with no beliefs other than the pursuit of power and anti-Semitism. Of course, his anti-Semitic views and actions were through the roof compared to other Christian states who also had long histories of anti-Semitism. As I've stated in prior episodes, no one went to war in Europe ever to save the Jews, so you can take that one off the table. H.A.P. Taylor went on to argue that the basic problem with an interwar Europe was a flawed Treaty of Versailles, and that was sufficiently onerous to ensure that the overwhelming majority of Germans would always hate it, but insufficiently onerous in that it failed to destroy Germany's potential to be a great power once again. 
But what of Chamberlain's foreign policy? As I have stated, in diplomacy, you appease all the time. That's what diplomacy is. Most times, it's small to medium-sized issues. Sometimes, they are whoppers. This one was a whopper. But in 1933, 1934, 1935, 1936, 1937, and even 1938, were the British ready to fight? The answer is no. The empire needed to mobilize. How do you fight a war if you have cut short your army? If you have a restive population in your empire with bubbles bursting in India and elsewhere, and didn't you just come out of the greatest and bloodiest war of all times in just 1918? So 1933 was just 15 years after 1918. 1939 was just 21 years after 1918. Not long. Count backwards from your today. Today, I'm in 2022 right now. So 21 years ago was 2001 while 15 years ago was 2007. This is very much living memory. And this is after a huge, horrible economic hit, a depression, no less. And this is after an even worse demographic hit where so many people, men especially, died during the Great War. We even know that the United Kingdom was not ready. We know this because the years 1939 to 1940 is often known as the phony war where little happened. The British, despite the Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain episodes, may have lost it if it were not for the United States and the Soviet Union. That Eastern Front, that crucial Eastern Front, was what ultimately defeated Nazi Germany. So appeasement, with hindsight, was not a bad foreign policy. It was simply the least bad option at the time, while the British could rearm at Remobilized to fight that looming war, a war that was fought for all the geopolitical reasons you can think of, but never once fought to save the Jews. I mentioned it a bit earlier, but I do find it insane, bordering on the ridiculous, that anyone and everyone is somehow consigned to be called Hitler or Nazi. I've seen people like Saddam Hussein or Vladimir Putin with the occasional Robert Mugabe tarnished with the Adolf Hitler monkeyer. I've also seen people throw about the word Nazi to people like even Donald Trump, an appeasement to any policy to make peace with any world leader. It is the most daft, silly, and lazy label on post-1945 events that I can think of. However, and here is the most disturbing thing about the period 1937 to 1939, and it is a lesson to everyone, you may or not agree with the policy of appeasement. However, to buy the policy for the government, the positive opinion of appeasement was shaped partly by media manipulation. Yes, that's right. Media manipulation. The German correspondent for the Times in newspaper charged that his persistent reports about Nazi materialism were suppressed by his editor. This claim, by the way, has been confirmed by future historians. The results of an October 1938 Gallup poll showed 86% of the public believed Hitler was lying about his future territorial ambitions, and that was censored from the News Chronicle at the last minute by the publisher who was loyal to the Prime Minister. For the few journalists who were asking challenging questions about appeasement, primarily members of the foreign press, Chamberlain often froze them out or intimidated them. 
when asked at a press conference about Hitler's abuse of Jews and other minority groups, he went on to denounce those reporters as Jewish communist propaganda. Lord Halifax told radio producers not to offend Hitler and Mussolini. They complied by censoring anti-fascist commentary made by Labour and Popular Front MPs. The BBC also suppressed the fact that 15,000 people protested the Prime Minister in Trafalgar Square as he returned from Munich in 1938. The BBC radio producers continued to censor news of Jewish persecution even after the war broke out, as Chamberlain still held out hopes of a quick armistice and did not want to inflame the atmosphere. So yes, there was this campaign to support appeasement in the 1930s, to keep the population quiet while they rearmed. They did not want Hitler to get wind of what they were doing, aka rearming, and did not want to alarm the population to another war with the Germans. But that was still media manipulation. The anti-appeasers and the leaders of the labor movement who formed government in 1945 that then ultimately shaped British domestic and international policy for decades afterwards also thought that. So the media narrative then flipped. In the future, the historical doctrine then became against appeasement. Lesson learned. Lesson learned, again, is that if you live, and I air quote this, a free liberal democracy, i.e. a typically Western society brought up on a diet of freedom, rule of law, and democracy, remember that if your government is saying something and the media is in general agreement, you need to be careful. This is the path to the dark side. Those folks listening who come from countries not of that ilk, well, you know, in those countries, media manipulation is normal. And you should know that and you should just take about everything with lots of pinches of salt. I'm talking to you, China, North Korea, and other countries. My view, in case it's not obvious here, is that appeasement is a natural part of foreign policy. Most of the time, small fish and medium fish decisions, easy. Once or twice, big whale decisions. Halifax, Baldwin, and Chamberlain faced big fish decisions. Wary of war and unprepared for war, they needed to prepare for war. Peasement bought time and hopefully prevented war. No one wanted to go to war to save the Jews. Remember that. No one wanted to go to war to save the Jews. Of those fighting the war, nasty Japan, butcher Germany, evil Italy, who was it against? Jim Crow USA, Imperial UK, nasty USSR, all of the above, basket case countries. Australia, for example, and the US still had pro-North European immigration at the time. In those days, everyone was a racist. And I do mean everyone. That means non-white people were racist too. In case you buy into the Western, modern, wokish narrative, don't. When I say everyone, I mean everyone is a racist. Everyone. And you should check out my episode on racism, on why I think all 8 billion people today racist and were then, you know, racist. Even you, even me, maybe. But I think so. With all that said, I do not want this to undermine the absolute fact that Nazi ideology 
was brutal and evil and that no matter how evil the UK, USSR, and USA were right there at that time, they were correct to fight the Nazis. But that isn't real politique. That's a commentary on the ideology and the actions of its leadership. No one did anything in the 1930s as Adolf Hitler and his henchmen were actually doing the most evil and barbaric of deeds, i.e. butchering minorities, including Jews. Anyway, I'm not here talking about liberators or liberators versus dictators. I'm here to talk about what really happened here and what this whole business about appeasement was. It was hard-nosed real politique. We're talking about countries who had, all of them, a rather nasty record of history themselves, and they were all going to war against one another. In the 1960s, following the 30-year rule, where the UK government papers are finally released after 30 years, the Chamberlain era was published, and some insights were included and useful to note. Chamberlain, for example, had considered seeking a grand coalition amongst European governments, like that was actually later advocated by Churchill himself, but it had been rejected on the ground that the division of Europe into two camps would make war more, not less, likely. Another thing that was shown was that Chamberlain had been advised that the Dominions, a.k.a. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, were pursuing their own independent foreign policies under the Statute of Westminster and had indicated that Chamberlain could not depend on their help in the event of a continental war. Finally, the Chiefs of Staff had reported or had indicated that Britain could not forcibly prevent Germany from conquering Czechoslovakia in the first place. So appeasement then was a sensible policy, at least in the 1930s. It does not mean, though, that every situation since or in the future needs to be ever compared with what happened there. That was a policy of its time. In 2020, British historian Alan Allport concludes Neville Chamberlain was, and I'm quoting him, vain, mean, casually bigoted, boring, ungrateful, spiteful, obstinate, and friendless, egotistical, but also insecure and thin-skinned. He cultivated close relations with the Fleet Street barons and lobby correspondents and glorified in favorable newspapers about himself, yet complained bitterly that the press was always attacking him. End quote. Clearly not a fan, right? But I want to leave the last word to the Prime Minister, or Prime Accused. So, a few days before his death, Neville Chamberlain wrote in 1940, and I'm quoting him, So far as my personal reputation is concerned, I am not in the least disturbed about it. The letters, which I am still receiving in such vast quantities, so unanimously dwell on the same point, namely, without Munich, the war would have been lost and the empire destroyed in 1938. I do not feel the opposite view has a chance of survival. Even if nothing further were to be published giving the true inside story of the past two years, I should not fear the historian's verdict. 
end quote. Catch you all soon. All the best. But do like, subscribe, and tell other people about this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.